And so if any of you have a Bible, you can open along with me a familiar place of Scripture for us. This is Matthew chapter 5, verses 45 and 48. So that you may be the sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. The sermon that I would like to continue is called, Called to Perfection. We know that this promised commandment is the inheritance of the saints of all time, and this commandment is addressed by Christ to his disciples. Therefore, those who do not accept the authority of the person sent by God have no relation whatsoever to the inheritance of this commandment. To fulfill this command, we have stopped to study the purpose of God's righteousness in the heart of a person. What purpose is the righteousness of God in our heart intended to fulfill? And specifically, we have been studying that the purpose of the righteousness of God in our heart, accepted by us in the broken tablets of testimony in which we, with the law, died to the law, so that we could live for the one who died and rose, so we can receive the affirmation of our salvation, the new tablets of testimony, are intended to give God the basis to give us the promise, not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith, just as He had given it to Abraham and his seed. For the promise that He would be the heir of peace was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Romans chapter 4, verse 13. We've noted the righteousness of faith in our heart is defined by the obedience of our faith to the faith of God, or our obedience to the gospel word spoken by the messenger of God in the face of a person who represents the fatherhood of God for us. The faith of God is information that comes from hearing the word of God. Faith is from hearing. Our faith is obedience to the faith of God, or our cooperation with the faith of God. Submission of ourselves to the truth. And so the promise of the peace of God is given only to those people who obey the order of God and who have clothed themselves in the dignity of the disciples of Christ, which allowed us to obey the order of God, cooperation with which He sends us His word through the mouth of the messengers of God. Therefore, the covenant of peace in the heart of a person is the result of the obedience of his faith to the faith of God and the words of the messenger of God. In a certain format, as far as God and the level of our faith have allowed us, we've already studied the first six signs with which we can test to see if we are the sons of peace and the sons of God. And we have stopped to study the seventh sign. This is by the ability to clothe our essence into the holy or selective love of God. The holy, holy meaning selective, because holiness separates what is clean from what is unclean, what is holy from what is unholy. It always separates that which by nature is not equal to the nature of God. That's why it is called holy. Translated into our language so that we understand what holy is, it is selective. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. This is referring to the love of God, agape. Colossians chapter 3, verses 14 through 15. 
According to this passage, the rule of the peace of God in our hearts is possible only under one condition. If we are clothed in the selective love of God, and we are clothed in the selective love of God. For the selective love of God, which is the atmosphere of the peace of God, it contains good, wonderful, eternal, and incomprehensible to our mind goals of God that are called to build, build unique and peaceful relationships between God and His children. God does not want to communicate with everyone because He does not love all people. He loves only His children. Christ had loved only His church, Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians, and He had given Himself up for her by washing her through the Word so that she could be holy and unblemished before Him in love. Just as God also in this world has loved every person who believes so that every believer in this world should not perish but have eternal life. It's not a good a good translation, John chapter 3, verse 16, that um, leads people to think that God loves everyone because this translation says, For God so loved the world that everyone who believes in Him shall not perish. So it turns out that this resists and opposes the, the actual the translation that was given to the correct translation. That means that the translation was incorrect because the translation must be must be not word for word but out of the context. If you translate word for word I have no money then you it will translate to I have no money in Russian. So here the translators had also mistakenly translated it. This apostle also says further on in the chapter, do not love everything in this world that is, uh, that is of this world. The world is condemned, the world lies in evil. How can lo God love the world that is already condemned, that lies in evil, and that has rejected Him? God has loved people in this world who search for Him and who walk toward the light. And according to these words, the character of the selective love of God is presented by the Holy Spirit in Scripture through the Gospel word of the Apostles and Prophets in the light of seven unearthly virtues. So practically here we see the fruit and the components of this fruit because the love of God is given to us in the seed of the Word of God and we grow it into the in the good soil of our heart into fruit and only we can be in the fruit can we be clothed and only the fruit can be arraigned in our body. And so these virtues are one, virtue, knowledge, self-control, patience, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. These are all components of one fruit, love. Each individual virtue, the fruit of virtue, contains the characteristics of all other virtues because they flow from one another, fulfill one another, strengthen one another, and are found in one another. They are equal. They are equally dissolved in one another. Second, these virtues in our heart are the moral perfections and standards that are inherent to the essence of our Heavenly Father. Third, these virtues are the great and precious promises given to us through Christ and in Christ.
Fourth, these virtues presented in seven characteristics are the incorruptible treasures and riches which we must become enriched with. So this is what love is comprised of in these seven components of the fruit of virtue. Fifth, to enter into the inheritance of these virtues, we can do so by accepting the Holy Spirit as the Lord and ruler of our life. Not the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Baptism of the Holy Spirit is the action of the Holy Spirit that he, do, he does in a person in the moment of baptism by immersing him until the death of the Lord Jesus so that he can give the opportunity for his spirit to pray in tongues by using his wheeling apparatus, the wheeling apparatus of his soul. Then our spirit begins to understand the language of God. Our spirit is given this language of God, this angelic language that our mind does not understand. But by praying in tongues, we edify our spirit. But this doesn't mean that we have received the Holy Spirit. We have received a deposit of the Holy Spirit. Many people write, no, you received the Holy Spirit when you're baptized in the Holy Spirit. For He has come to you. Yes, truly the Holy Spirit does come along with His gifts. And He gives us a deposit. He gives us His deposit. And then he leaves. Because at that moment, when we receive baptism of the Holy Spirit, we don't understand at that point what is good and what is evil. We don't understand who is our Lord and how we should submit ourselves to the Holy Spirit as the Lord and ruler of our life. Because before this, in order to submit to him, we needed to have understood the teaching of Jesus Christ who came in the flesh, and the limits of which the Holy Spirit can act as Lord and ruler. And we don't know it at that point quite yet. We've only found out that we are sinners and that God can save us through repentance. But because you have heard that you can't smoke, can't drink, can't steal, and um, speak bad words, it doesn't mean that you know the teaching of Christ. This doesn't mean that you know the teaching of Jesus Christ. It's only the beginning. You have received the seed of salvation, deposit of salvation. You received the seed of salvation. And now you must take the, bake the soil of the, of the heart good. Cleanse it from dead works. Because the soul automatically begins to serve God. She likes this. But once we have just come to God, the soul thinks that it can control the words that come from the pulpit. This is one of the most dangerous things when we try to control the anointed word of God. This means that our heart is not prepared to hearing. We have not been taught how to hear the word of God. When you go into the house of the Lord, prepare your hearts to hearing, not to control, not to inspect. You're not an inspector. You are who? An apostle? They ask me. Are you are you an apostle to control the words of an apostle? Who are you? Perhaps you have went to school of theology by studying five or six years, but you do not become spiritual through this. You become even more dependent on the um, dependency in your and your spirit and your in your body. Your excuse me, your soul and your body. If the Holy Spirit is not Lord and ruler of our life, we cannot inherit the love of God and be clothed in it. And consequently, we will not have peace and we will not be sons of peace. 
Six, the means that we are called to enact through the acceptance of the power of the Holy Spirit is the obedience of our faith to the faith of God. Seventh, by inheriting these great and precious promises and the fruit of our spirit, we are made partakers of God's essence because of which the proclamation of the faith of our heart becomes equal to the words coming from the mouth of God. For the, the true selective love of God and the seven dignities and characteristics has nothing in common with human love that is filled with ignorance, selfishness, and inconsistency. We began to study the selective love of God in the format of seven virtues we must demonstrate in our faith to reign the resurrection of Christ in our earthly bodies and clothe our earthly bodies into the resurrection of Christ in the face of our new man. Our new man, which is the fruit of resurrection. The bond of perfection of the selective love of God with regard to the seven virtues is unconditional. And apart from the tolerant and selfish love of man, the unconditional selective love of God differs in that it carries the all-consuming zeal of God, His omnipotence, and His absolute wisdom that is impossible to use for selfish and ignorant reasons. Whereas the tolerant love of man toward man can be easily used for selfish purposes. And here are how the pages of Scripture define the strength of the love of God. This is written in Song of Solomon, chapter 8, verses 6 through 7. And this tolerant love is blind. And there is a phrase that says, Love is blind, you may fall in love even with a donkey. That love is blind, you can't help who you love. When physical love, carnal love, overtakes a person, he is blind. He doesn't see any lack. But God's love is not blind. And here is how, again, the pages of Scripture define the strength of God's love. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. For love is as strong as death, jealousy as cruel as the grave. Its flames are flames of fire, a most vehement flame. Many waters cannot quench love, nor can the floods drown it. If a man would give for love all the wealth of his house, it would be utterly despised. Songs of Solomon, chapter 8, verses 6-7 through seven. The toilet love of man is sold. Everything depends on the price. Sometimes a person says, I won't sell it for anything. When, but when the stakes rise, 50,000, 100,000, 1 million, 50 million. And of course, when he sees that he will truly receive $100 million for something, then he says, he's willing to give everything up. I'm sorry, my, my spouse. I'm sorry, my dear one. It's $100, $100 million. Sometimes people sell this love even for far, far less. God's love has no mistresses if it has coincided with a person or cooperated with a person it will not have any mistresses on the sidelines 
And so the level of the love of God is defined by the level of the power of the hatred of God toward evil and those who practice evil. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 9. And this place of scripture is also taken from Psalm 49. Righteousness and lawlessness are programs that outside of a human heart, which is a programmable device, they do not work. That's why God has loved righteousness in the carriers of righteousness, and He has hated lawlessness in the carriers of lawlessness. Psalms chapter 11, verses 5 through 7. The Lord tests the righteous, but the wicked and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. Upon the wicked he will rain coals, fire and brimstone, and a burning wind shall be the portion of their cup. Take a look at how God's love is. It is not tolerant, it is a burning wind. For the Lord is righteous, he loves righteousness, his countenance beholds upright. Because only by loving what God loves and hating what God hates do we demonstrate the perfection of God and his reaction to the good of righteous people who do good and the unrighteous people who do evil and lawlessness. Where it is the selective love of God according to its unearthly nature in the format of seven supernatural virtues that is called to bring us to the full measure of the stature of Christ or to the perfection that is inherent to our Heavenly Father so that we can shine with the light of our sun on the righteous and unrighteous and pour out our rain according to the intentions of God on the just for blessings and the unjust for punishment. Considering, however, that these seven virtues do not have analogies in the earthly dimension of the human lexicon, nor any dictionaries of this world that exist. The love of God is a foundation and atmosphere of the moral law that reveals in our heart the essence of God as well as the essence of the kingdom of heaven. And this is not all. The love of God agape is a sovereign love that is unconditional only in relation to those people whom it chooses to understand it. For whom he foreknew, so God being in the omnipresent, being in the past, present, and future, before we were born, God had foreknown us through his omnipresence. He had foreknown how we were going to react to the truth. And seeing us how we were going to react to the light and follow the light, he has known us. So foreknowledge means he knows how we're going to act. And that's why he predestines us to be like the Son of, to be in the image and likeness of the Son of God. Romans chapter 8, verse 29. And thanks to its sovereignty, the selected love of God never violates legal rights in relationships with those people whom it selects. I stand at the door and knock. Whoever opens the door, I will come into him and I will dine with him and he with me. So if you search for me, then I will be found. If you turn to me, I will turn to you. There is no... Um, there's no pressure, it's up to man. And the love of God never allows the sovereign rights of its master to be violated. 
In a certain format, we've already studied the manifestation of the selective love of God and the virtues of virtue, knowledge, self-control, and patience. And we have stopped to study the virtue of the love of God and the mystery of her godliness. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. In all of this, God has done through His church so that she could be, it could be made through the church to, um, to all the wisdom of God. He had shown himself to his angels through his church. The angels, in fact, have never seen God, and they've never seen the Son of God. They were not allowed to yet. They are servants. They can see the Son of God through us, though, and the Heavenly Father through us, so that they see his wisdom in us. This will be made known to them. And we are also known in hell if we are truly the children of God, if we truly have this kind of love agape. I know Jesus and I know Paul because the names of people like Paul were known in hell, but the names of the sons of the high priest Skitha were not known to me. That's why the demons had tortured these seven people because in these demons had lived in one person. He had just, he had ashamed these seven people because they had the audacity to preach with the name of Jesus Christ and they had received their retribution and Jesus says you are the light to the earth Jesus is not the light to the earth to the world directly light to the earth are his children who are born from him and that's why in heaven, in hell, and on earth, all that God has done so that He can be known is through His church, through His chosen remnants. In this manner, it is through the manifestation, the fruit of godliness, that we can identify the true love of God agape in the heart of man, as well as His thoughts, words, actions, and in the way in which He dresses so that his garments do not excite the sexual instincts of the opposite sex. And we've noted that there exists a forgery of godliness that will challenge the true manifestation of godliness, having a form of godliness but denying its power from such people turn away. You see, it's not the tolerant love of men. It does... 2 Timothy verses 3 through 5. Chapter 3, verse 5. Having a form of godliness, but denying its power, and from such people turn away. If we do not break off relations with people who have only an outward appearance of godliness, they will corrupt our godliness consisting of our good morals. Because of this, we together with them will inherit the destruction prepared for them. With regard to this, um, people who have a form of godliness, they're based on only how they understand. They say, well, I don't agree with this. I don't agree with this. I don't understand this this way. What, do you believe everything? People ask you, do you believe everything your pastor tells you? These are people who have only an outward appearance of godliness. They for themselves are apostles, prophets, and the whole structure or the infrastructure in these churches is they just, they just need in order to manifest themselves there, to manifest their character. 
because of this will be a true, the true church of God with the order of God they won't be able to to sit there for long they are wicked people who won't be able to sit in the council of the godly either we will excommunicate them they themselves will leave or so forth and with regard to this it was necessary for us to answer four classic questions with what characteristics does scripture endow the godliness of God and man what purpose is godliness called to fulfill in the relationship of God with man and man with God what conditions are necessary to fulfill for our godliness to collaborate with the godliness of God and by what signs should we define that our godliness truly collaborates with the godliness of God in a certain format, we have already studied two signs of the fourth question with which we must verify the cooperation of our godliness with the godliness of God. And we have stopped to study the third sign. The third sign by which we must test to see that in showing the selective love of God, our godliness cooperates with the godliness of God is by the fact that the Lord is our shepherd. A Psalm of David, Psalms 23, verses 1 through 6. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yeah, I w though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And so evidence that God is our shepherd, in this Psalm of David, there are four components. This is... First, that the Lord makes me lie down in green pastures. If He is my shepherd, then He will make me lie down in green pastures. The Lord leads me beside still waters. The Lord restores my soul. The Lord leads me in the paths of righteousness. To test and weigh ourselves on the scales of justice to see if we have these components should be done by the presence of four other components that are discovered when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. First, when we do so, we will fear no evil because God is with us. Second, the Lord's rod and staff, they will comfort us. Third, God has prepared a table before us in the presence of our enemies. And fourth, God has anointed our head with oil and our cup runs over. In a certain format, we have already examined the essence of the first three signs in our heart that serve as evidence that the Lord is our shepherd. And we have stopped to study the fourth sign in our heart, which says, the Lord leads me in the paths of righteousness. Which points to the fact that this person whom the Lord leads in the paths of righteousness is led by the Holy Spirit. We have known that it is impossible to lead a person in the paths of righteousness against his will if he does not understand and does not distinguish the paths of righteousness from the paths of his mind or the paths of the wicked and lawless who support the wicked. In Hebrew, one of the components of the paths of righteousness are the snares of the Most High, while the paths of the wicked are the snares into which they catch unapproved souls. 
In Hebrew, the path of righteousness means the snare of righteousness, step of righteousness, foot of righteousness, trace of righteousness, the path of righteousness to the wisdom of God, growth, increase, and expansion on the paths of righteousness, on, and partaking to the body of Christ on the paths of righteousness. I will remind you that we are studying the paths of righteousness in the heart of a righteous person whose spirit lives in the house of the Lord. Blessed are those who dwell in your house. They will still be praising you. Blessed is the man whose strength is in you, whose heart is set on pilgrimage. Psalms chapter 84 verses 4 through 5. We must consider that all the components of the paths of righteousness are dissolved in one another, are found in one another, uphold one another, and define the truth of one another. During previous sermons, we have already looked at a set of signs of paths of righteousness that discover themselves in the paths of the Lord. And the next sign of paths of righteousness shown in the ways of the Lord in the heart of a person in the broken tablets of testimony and discovering itself in the new tablets of testimony in the fruit of righteousness is a meek heart discovering itself in the tree of life. A meek tongue is a tree of life, but, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. Proverbs 15, 4. With this ability, each one of us can define, are we spiritual or are we still carnal? If you are able to bridle your lips, it means that you are a spiritual person. If you are unable to bridle your lips, it means that you are still carnal. To bridle, it's when a storm arises within you, a storm of, of, of dis discontent. It's when you begin to blame others who try to blame you, and you um, begin to argue with them, and it means you're carnal. You don't know what could happen in the future, what could be a result of you opening your mouth. If there's going to be an argument, you must know to, to walk away from it by being silent. The next place of scripture is in Psalms chapter 25, verses 8 through 10. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he teaches sinners in the way. The humble he guides in justice, and the humble he teaches his way. All the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth to such as keep his commandment and his testimonies. God guides those who are wise in heart to bringing fruit of righteousness and teaches the meek in heart his ways when he receives the basis to show them his mercy and truth. In this kind of basis, the meek in heart give God when they keep his covenant and his revelation with the weapon of a meek tongue. Meekness and the dignity of a bridled tongue is the fruit of the Spirit grown by way of discipleship, for which the price of voluntary obedience is paid in obeying the preached word of the person whom God clothed in the powers of his fatherhood and established over us to give rest to our souls. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle, meek, and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You see, meekness is impossible to receive from God in a fruit. It can be received in a seed, and then this seed must be grown into a fruit. To grow 
is necessary through teaching, through learning. It says, learn, te- learn from me. And when we learn, then we, when we are taught, we will arrive to this meekness. If you've paid attention, the price for being taught, the discipline of meekness, must be paid before we find rest for our souls and become carriers of the good yoke of Christ. And this price is comprised of two conditions, first, to come to Christ, and second, to take His yoke upon ourselves. Without the fulfillment of these two conditions, we will not be able to receive the authority to be clothed in the powers of a disciple of Christ, so that we can be taught meekness. The goal that paths of righteousness pursues in the ways of the Lord by which God leads the meek is the right to inherit the promised land, which was referring to our body that will be freed from the captivity of decay and death, and in which the power of eternal life will be raised up, filled with an abundance of peace that will satisfy us. For evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait in the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. Those who wait on the Lord shall inherit the earth. For yet a little while, and the wicked shall be no more. Indeed, you will look carefully for his place, but it shall be no more. The meek shall inherit the earth, and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. Psalms 37, verses 9 through 11. Jesus, as the root and stem of David, implemented the discipline of meekness or the words of this psalm in the teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. He had said, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Before him, David had spoken about this. The meek shall inherit the earth and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. And Jesus, again, as the root and stem of, of David, implemented the discipline of meekness as the contents of his teaching on the Sermon on the Mount as a necessary component for the right to adopt our bodies with his redeeming sacrifice. Blessed is the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Meekness, being a fruit of the Spirit, is an integral characteristic by which it is necessary to determine and distinguish a spiritual person from a carnal person. It is the presence of the fruit of meekness that defines the status of a person's independence from a carnal state as well as the status of a person's independence from the Law of Moses, the authority of which spreads on every person who is held captive of his corrupt carnal desires. It should be noted that any manifestation of the desires of the soul of a holy person that is not inspired by the truth of the cross of Christ, however good they may seem in our eyes, are corrupt and deadly. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness, self-control. Against such there is no law. Galatians chapter 5, verses 22-23. This kind of a person is freed from the law. The law has no relation to him. A meek person will always be subject to cruel attacks from carnal people who are the carriers of the works of the flesh. among the people of God. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are, again, everything begins from um, envy. Now take a look at what comes from envy. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, and so forth. 
of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in the time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God, or rather will not inherit salvation. Envy, standing head of works of the flesh, is an integral component that is part of the natural characteristics of the flesh, or a man of the flesh, who does not have the marks of the cross. We, all of us, were born with this envy. All of us were born with this envy. All of us, without condition, were born because we had received the genetic inheritance of the old man who is found in us, who has this envy. Meekness and envy are two mutually exclusive programs that represent in our body the inheritance of two mutually exclusive and opposing sources in the format of two powerful potentials. And such opposition is yielded by the sovereign right to obey the truth and the sovereign right to disobey the truth. The choice is ours. The choice of the path of obedience to truth and the choice of the path of disobedience to the truth is the opening of our powerful potential or that point of reference from which our movement begins toward those goals that stand at the end of these paths. The potential of meekness expressed in obedience to truth or in self-bridling our tongue is called upon to build us as children of God into the image of our Heavenly Father who yields Himself with the word proceeding from His mouth or who bridles Himself with the word proceeding from His mouth. O worship toward your holy temple and praise your name for your loving kindness and your truth for you have magnified your word above all your name. Psalms 138 verse 2 as soon as the word of God comes from the mouth of God, God bridles himself with this word. He does not do anything outside of the boundaries of the word that has come from his lips, and he is vigilant over these words. And take a look at where he is vigilant and where he magnifies it. He magnifies it in the holy temple, and the holy temple are our bodies. And consequently, he magnifies in the holy temple the word, when in the heart of a person, the truth is placed, the, the commanding teaching of Christ in the twelve base teachings. And when a person has accepted the Holy Spirit as the Lord and ruler of his life, that is going to uncover the truth in the heart, when these two great witnesses are present that stand before the God of all the earth in the heart of a person, Thumim and Darim, only then will God in this holy temple magnify His word and bridles Himself with His word. He is made a servant of His word. He makes Himself voluntarily dependent on this word. He is vigilant so that it is fulfilled for this person. The potential of envy expressed in disobedience to the truth of the word and in refusing to bridle our tongue in obedience to the truth of the word of God is intended to transform us into the children of the devil. Their primary source of envy is the fallen cherub who turned himself into an adversary of God. Envy, which finds itself in disobedience to truth, reprogrammed the fallen cherubim into the fetid creature of eternal darkness sowing death. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. 1 John chapter 3, verse 8. The sin of devil consisted in pride, which engendered envy. Pride is a state in which the creation begins to consider itself the creator, not holding on to the head. The cherub had begun to look at himself in the mirror, and he had seen himself that he was very beautiful. And 
that he was no different than God. But we must view ourselves in the mirror of God. God for us is supposed to be a mirror. And we are supposed to see, when we look at God, we see what God is like. And when we see what God is like, we will never uh, see that we are not uh, the creation, but we're the creator. We will never think this way if we look in the mirror of God. And when a person with his mind tries to study scripture, he says, I am the creator, I am God, I am just like God, I can interpret his thoughts and understand them. I have my own head, why am I supposed to listen to somebody else? And so when the fallen cherub began to consider himself a god, he saw the obvious advantages of God and envied him. When he, This envy was a virus and rot in his bones and transformed him into an eternal enemy of God. A meek heart is life to the body, but envy is rottenness to the bones. Life to the body. This means that meekness will be medicine for the body. You will begin to be healed from your illnesses. You do not strive to ask God, Lord, give me healing, but you will ask, as David had asked, Lord, guard the doors of my lips. When you're able to bridle your lips, God is going to begin to heal you. If you do not bridle your lips, illnesses will progress in you. A meek heart is life to the body, but envy is rottenness to the bones. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 30. Based on the existing statement, and it is not the only one about meekness, this is statement, meekness carries life for the whole body and yields the power of eternal life intended for the healing and the health of our entire body. Namely, by the power of the potential of meekness, the power of eternal life will be erected in our body. Whereas the presence and the cultivation of envy in our heart carries for the whole body a volume of various diseases and leads our body to a painful and eternal death. One indisputable thing should be noted. As sweet and bitter water cannot flow out of one source at the same time, and just as a good tree cannot bear bad fruit and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit, so in one person, meekness and envy cannot coexist. A bone, both literally and figuratively, represents the strength of the human body, the strength of the human spirit, and the strength of our faith. Did you not pour me out like milk and curdle me like cheese, clothe me with skin and flesh, and knit me together with bones and sinews? You have granted me life and favor, and your care has preserved my spirit. So God has clothed the spirit of a person into bones, ligaments, and flesh. When envy arises in a person through the fact that he allows Satan to put some rebellious thought into his heart, it produces the same effect in a person that rotting bacteria in bones produces. In medicine, purulent inflammation of bone tissue is characterized as osteomyelitis. The disease usually begins with the appearance of a small bruise into which bacteria get from the source of infection that exists in the human body. And he said, what comes out of a man that defiles a man, for from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications. Why do people get sick? 
and evil, evil thoughts. All these evil things come from within and defile a man. Mark chapter 7, verses 20 through 23. When God created the visible world, He allowed the center of infection to be present in the physical world, expressed in personified envy in the face of an ancient serpent. For God created man to be immortal, and made him to be an image of his own eternity. Nevertheless, through envy of the devil came death into the world, and they do not hold of his side, and they that do hold of his side do find it. Wisdom of Solomon. The source of information of infection opened the possibility for a person to show his sovereign right to choose obedience and disobedience. If a person had only one opportunity to obey, but at the same time he would not have the opportunity to disobey, such an order so if he had only one opportunity to obey but at the same time not have the opportunity to disobey such an order would contra contradict the universal harmony of God since it would deprive a person of the sovereign right to choose between good and evil and between life and death and man could not be called man that is to be a sovereign person reflecting the likeness of God it would be simple, an animal being programmed by the animal instinct for obedience. Many ask a question, Lord, why have you allowed this? Why have you allowed this? Because you are sovereign. I have done this so that you could see that you are sovereign, that you can choose. If I would have deprived you of the right to choose, if I would not have done this but created only one thing, you would not be in the likeness of You would not be a reasonable man. You would be a beast who only has an instinct. With a choice of obedience and disobedience to God, which would be expressed in the choice between meekness and envy, which carry life and death in themselves, a person can be called a person and carry in himself the likeness of him who created him. And no matter how tragic it was, but the first man, according to the envy of the devil, chose death. And then the hearth of envy, present to the fallen cherubim, moved to man himself. A man became the bear of envy inherited from the devil. And this envy manifested itself for the first time in man through Cain, who killed his brother Abel. And then God, in order to save his creation, gave him a second chance to choose between life and death. Through the obedience of the second man, Jesus Christ, expressed in his given choice to be gentle and show meekness, gave man the opportunity, an opportunity to learn how to put on meekness to inherit eternal life. Just as Jesus had done when he had showed us, being the Son of God, he had submitted himself to his parents and to all uh, to the orders surrounding him. By choosing a program of meekness, we assert ourselves as children of God and inherit eternal life. By choosing the program of envy, we, like Cain, form ourselves into the children of the devil and are subject to eternal destruction. Why do you not understand my speech, Christ says to his people, to Israel, to the people of God? Because you are not able to listen to my word. They do not have the opportunity to hear. This, having an ear doesn't mean that you can hear it. They didn't have the ear of the heart. It was closed. It was uncircumcised. They could not hear his words. He says, why do you not understand my speech? Because your father, you are of your father, the devil. 
and the desires your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. A person who comes to God and does not rule over the genetic inheritance of his envy through obedience to truth is a person who refuses to stand in the truth and for the truth. In this situation is the result of our choice, which determines either the emergence and development of envy or the emergence and development of meekness. So it is necessary to once again affirm the existing concept that the disease and the health of our bodies in a literal sense and to a certain extent is connected with the absence or presence of envy cultivated by us. A meek heart is life to the body, but envy is rottenness to the bones. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 30. Envy opens up, both in our body and in our spirit, a wide break for all kinds of infectious diseases and bacteria, and that is why many prayers for healing and other timely help remain unanswered. Building defensive strongholds against envy is practically the development and strengthening of the immune system of our spirit, which expresses itself in the strongholds of a meek heart. Whether we want it or not, we are all set to solve two problems. First, how to challenge the envy arising within ourselves, and secondly, how to challenge the envy that comes against us from the outside from our neighbors. If we are taught meekness as Christ was taught meekness, then in this manner there will be a great miracle, not right away, perhaps unnoticeable to us, but just as a person, when he has, uh, when the doctor prescribes him medicine, the doctor says, when you drink these tablets in 10 days, for example, within the next 10 days, when you have a virus, when the virus is destroyed, it may take some time, and this truly happens. Same thing, God has defined that because you have accepted by faith and you begin to proclaim it, it doesn't mean that right away you will be made healthy. But you must already consider yourself dead to sin, alive to God, and you must call the inexistent as existent. This is our medicine. Do this until God does not lift up the power of life until you are healed. Take this medicine. Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. Call the inexistent as existent. Because God in this medicine, in this word, has already done everything for us. He has placed on our healing on our accounts and salvation in the kingdom of heaven. We are going to pray. Let us bend our knees for whom it is impossible, our heads, and all of those who desire to challenge sin, dependencies. If someone is bound to sin, if somebody has sinned, if somebody has offended somebody in some way, you can come out to the altar and say to God, Lord, I repent. I did not want to do this. I did not mean to do this. I reject my resentment. I reject all of this. And you can then participate in this great, uh, this great mystery which contains the property of eternal life. Let us bound, bend our knees and pray.
I will pray along with you with your prayers and I ask you to deeply believe that God is with you. He is not against you. Right now, He can destroy your chains. He can break them and He can make you free from sin. He can cleanse you from sin and He can make you once again worthy. Your eyes close as an element of a mystery room, your hands raised to the heavens. This is a sign that you are ready to receive healing from God without, without anger. And now pray along with me, Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, I come to you. I open my heart. You see my pain my shame, my sin that I despise but he is my master I want for you to be my master for you to enter into my heart and destroy the chains of slavery to heal me from sin from illnesses, from shame. I'm your child. I love you. I despise evil. I despise envy that arises within me. And right now, before heaven and hell, I accept your healing, your forgiveness, your freedom, and your justification. And right now, I want to proclaim that according to your word, I'm washed, I'm cleansed, I'm healed, I am renewed, I'm justified, I am saved. Your sins are forgiven to you and your transgressions in the name of Jesus Christ. May the Lord bless you. May He look upon you with His holy face and may He have mercy upon you. May He give you peace. May around you fall thousands and tens of thousands around you, but not draw near to you. May all of the blessings of the ancient hills and mountains come upon you. May in your body be destroyed the power of death, and in its place may the power of life be lifted up. May all of this come upon you and upon your descendants and may be fulfilled upon you. And let the nation say, Amen. Сие творите, когда только будете пить в мое воспоминание. Ибо всякий раз, когда вы едите хлеб сей и пьете чашу сию, смерть Господню возвещаете, доколе он придет. Посему, кто будет есть хлеб сей или пить чашу Господню недостойно, виновен будет but let a man examine himself and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup for he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself not discerning the Lord's body 
Ибо кто, если пьет недостойно, For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord, that we may not be condemned with the world. To participate in this great mystery can be every person who accepted Jesus as their personal Savior and who have sealed their faith with the baptism of water, they have entered into a covenant with God. This does not um, affect children because they are outside of this law, because God imputes to them righteousness and they did not need to take participate in water baptism, because God imputes to them. We need to look at children just as they are able to forgive and just as they act toward evil. That's why every person who is not excommunicated, who is not under any warning, who has no um, sorrow in his heart, any kind of mysterious sin, and we had the opportunity to confess our sins uh, so we can draw near to this mystery. We have a right to this action, to eat of the bread and to drink from the cup. I will ask you all to stand and we will pray about the bread. Jesus, Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, we thank you for the broken body that will come through your ro the rows of your people. And when we partake of it and eat of it, let your blessing and healing come into our bodies. May your mercy be presented and may the power of death be destroyed in our body and may it be replaced with the power of eternal life. We thank you for your broken body and we bow down before you in the dignity of this bread. Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated and he broke it and say it. Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Each person t t does the same thing that I have done, breaks apart a piece, breaks apart a piece and takes for himself. The breaking of bread is a sign of humility and a sign of the fact that we accept the fact that it was our sins that were the nails that had pierced him because he had died for our sins, not for all sins, but for the sins of his people. He will come to save those who are his from their sins, just as the Archangel Gabriel had said to Maria. This is what the angel had said in a dream. To He will come to save people from their sins. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes.
во всякий раз, когда вы едите хлеб сей, или же бьете чашу сию смерть, Господня... For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Писание рассматривает этот праздник победой, радостью и торжеством. Scripture views this feast as a victory, as a joy. And apart from those people who always think that Pesach or the Passover of Christ is an opportunity to cry and to talk about how Christ had suffered for us, heaven receives this differently. They call this a, a feast and they want people to rejoice along with the heavens. When the people of Israel had at one point had cried during Passover because it hadn't been done for a long time, it's written that the priests were grew afraid. They had asked the people, what are you doing? This is a feast. They had cried because the Passover was not did not happen in a long time. And the priest told them, well, this is joy. This is your deliverance. In this feast, the Lord has delivered you from sin and death. And He has lifted up the power of eternal life in your body. Why are we crying? Why are we in this time thinking about how He has suffered? He's already done this. And He wants us to, along with Him, to rejoice. He rejoices. He does not cry. The heavens come to joy when they see the children of God who rejoice in this. You have accepted the life of God right now. You have proclaimed that the death has already occurred. You, with your action and accepting of this bread, have proclaimed the life of God in yourselves. Because this is not the bread of death, this is the bread of life. That's why your healing progresses. You have accepted the medicine. You have accepted this truth. Not just in the word that you hear. But this bread materially represents this. And God wants for there also for there also to be something material that we eat, partake in. And this bread has become holy after we have blessed it. And so each time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you reclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Let us stand and let us pray for the cup just as we have prayed about the bread. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, we are grateful to you for the new cup of testimony that is poured out for the deliverance of many sins. When it goes through the rows of your people, we will bow before it and drink of it. May the blessing of your life come upon us, and may the power of death be destroyed in our bodies, and may the power of life be resurrected in us. We thank you for this cup, for this we bow down before it. Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Amen. You may be seated. The road to whom is approached, you may stand. And just as we have helped one another in the breaking of the bread, let us help one another in partaking of the cup. The cup is Christ, one for all generations given to us. For each time, as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till He comes.
кто поверит слышанному от нас. Исайя 53. Who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root of the dry, out of the dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows. He was despised. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He is not going to take this upon himself. He has already done so around 2,000 years ago and carried it upon himself. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. He had carried it in the presence of God. Only when the donkey that was given as a sacrifice was pierced and his blood was entered into the sanctuary, only after this the sins were placed upon this the sacrifice. He was called Hazazel. But the translators, they were afraid to translate this, this name because it was the name of the demonic prince. And they thought that the Gentiles would not understand this. But they this talked about how the fact that the sins were taken off Christ, who is an image of the sacrifice, sacrifice for sin. They were taken off of him, and they were placed on the, the donkey Azazel. And Christ living in us is without sin. He does not have sin. Devil had taken upon this and it was transplanted to him. God did not destroy it in its literal sense because sin is something that is eternal, that will abide eternally. But he had transferred our sin from the head of Jesus Christ upon the head of devil. And that's why in Matthew it says, when the evil spirit comes out, when it's in original, it's written, when the Azazel leaves, the sin, who walk in the waterless places searching for rest. Therefore, blessed be God who has delivered us from sin. When I ask people a question who say, Christ has taken upon my sin, I said, where is your sin upon Christ? They say, and I said, well, is Christ in you? They say, yes. I said, if does he live with this sin in you? And they don't know what to say. I say to them, if Christ in you lives with sin, you will never inherit salvation. Christ lives in us without sin. We accept the resurrected Christ. If there are those who for some reason have been forgotten, please stand. If not, I will ask you all to stand and we will proclaim our unchanging manifestation. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To God our Savior, who alone is wise.
be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen.